Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're, uh, we're going to continue studying together the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we sort of have a new section this morning. Um, so far, we've looked at the Beatitudes, and we've, we've spent some... Did I lose? No? Good? We've, uh, we've looked at the Beatitudes, and then we spent some time together considering Jesus' statement the last two weeks in particular, looking at verses 13 through 16, where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, and he gives his disciples this identity as salt of the earth and as light of the world, meaning that we go out into the world and proclaim a message that may not be one that the world enjoys or likes, and then that we are also the light of the world, showing, displaying how the difficulties of the world and the sin and the corruption that has taken place in the world um, is actually uh, being illuminated by those who are the light of the world. So this morning, look with me then. We're going to look at uh, verses 17 through 20 in Matthew chapter 5. And, um, and Jesus begins, like I said, probably a new section here and sets up for us probably these next six statements. If you look with me in verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, You have heard it said that, the, to, that it was said to those of old. And then in 27, you have heard that it was said. And then verse 31, it was also said. Verse 33, you have heard it said to those of old. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. And then verse 43, you have heard that it was said. He's going to set up each of these things demonstrating to us what it looks like to live correctly as a follower of Jesus. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And he's going to give us these three things, sort of this reimagining of the law, this reimagining of what previously came and how the disciples should think about what it looks like to live, live correctly. So before we get to our text this morning, we'll read it in just a minute. I want to give you three thoughts because, because we are kind of starting this new section. I want to give you three thoughts and think through three things clearly. And the first comes from Mark Twain. The, the second comes from my wife. Um, and then the third comes from, and she's not here, so that's probably good. And then uh, the third comes just from our idea and understanding of legalism. We use that word a lot. We use the word legalist a lot in, in our culture, especially in Christian culture. And so we want to digest a little bit. So I'm just going to give you these three things. Hopefully this will draw us or create a bridge for us as we move from our previous study in Matthew chapter 5 to verses 17 through 20 this morning. So the Sermon on the Mount, I think as we've spent some time together, I think you, you don't have to nod your head or, or raise your hand. But I think so far in our time together in the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen some pretty dramatic things that probably don't make us always feel great about who we are as people. Um, which is the way that Jesus sets up uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount with these blessing statements. He, he gives us these, uh, these eight different statements pertaining to things that the world doesn't value, that the world doesn't think is important, that the world thinks are, are strange. And so in our time together so far in the Sermon on the Mount, I, I would submit to you that if your heart hasn't been pricked uh, by the difficulty of it, I pray that God would soften you up because some of these things here are hard to hear and they should be hard to hear. And if they're falling on our ears and it's not hard, then what we need to do is, is hope that as we sit down and study some of these things out, as you consider preparing for Sunday morning, I feel like I'm being mortally wounded by some of these things just because of the, the, the tone that Jesus takes. He's, he's going at his disciples and he's telling them, now there is something new here that you must be living as new creations 
Everything looks different. The world looks completely different. Jesus' words are intended in the Sermon on the Mount to cut to the heart. They're intended to cut to the heart. There's really no way around that. And so this morning we're going to launch into sort of this even more straightforward, unfiltered teaching, right? Even though that this is sort of the setup section for these six statements that Jesus is going to make. There's a really unfiltered teaching that Jesus is going to give to his his disciples as it pertains particularly to the law and how it's reimagined. Mark Twain, there's where Mark Twain fits into this. He, he's thought to have said this. It's ascribed to him. I'm not sure if he actually wrote it. But it said he said he said this. It ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. It's the parts that I do understand, he says, that are the bothersome parts for him. So one of the greatest dangers for us as Bible readers is as we look together at a text like this, and we look at it and we say, okay, I understand that. I'm going to move on now. Um, because if you really did, if we really were processing this together, I think that we would be disturbed by it. I think that we would look at this and we would say, not, not disturbed like it's fuel for a nightmare, but like, a, a, like disturbed like the way that I'm living, the trajectory that I'm on, the place that I'm going, I can't, I can't continue. I need to be, something needs to be changed here. Something needs to be altered in here. The way that I'm living in any area of our lives at any point in time, we'll never arrive here where we look together at the pages of Scripture and we say to ourselves, yeah, I got this down, I'm doing it well. That's a, that's a problem. That's probably why Jesus reimagined so dramatically some of these things that, that even the disciples had heard. Again, when he says, next week when we look at this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, and he says that six times in a row. The Bible, too, as we come to Scripture, the Bible, and, and, and there are so many diverse, there's just a glut of understandings of what the Word of, Word of God is. But I'm going to tell you this morning that the Word of God and what it attests to be in and of itself is something that is tended, intended to demonstrate to us who we are in light of who God is, God is at the center of the story. We are not. And so when we read our Bible, then, what that means is when we read our Bible, we sit down. It's not an information exchange like reading a Wikipedia article, or it's not an information exchange like watching a cooking show. It's actually a transformational process that's happening. And we need to acknowledge that when we sit down and we see the words of God sitting before us. We need to understand that God is transforming us more into the image of God. His son, and that we must submit ourselves then, then to this. Okay, so that takes us then to sort of our second thought this morning of setting up our time together. Um, Rebecca and I celebrated nine years of marriage this last Wednesday. Um, oh, yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> um, and we were talking about the Bible because that, that's what we, we talk about. We were talking about barriers, just like in our own hearts, to reading the Bible, like sitting down. And sometimes, you know, sometimes those are just things like, well, we have three kids, four, two, and one years old. That, that sometimes it just gets difficult to sit down and have any focused time to do anything. Um, but, but then we started talking just about, and my wife is just incredibly wise, um, and she, she said to, to me, um, she said, I think, I think sometimes, well, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this, um, but, but she said to me, um, the reason why we don't give ourselves the more disciplined, consistent Bible reading, and, and I'm going to actually say, speak this directly to men. Men, I think that we struggle with this more than even women. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Well, I know why. It's because of the, the order in the garden and how that all took place. But we can talk about that some other time. 
But my wife, just this is a paraphrase, but she said, sometimes we set our Bibles aside and say that it's hard to understand and then wear that as a badge of humility. We do that. We say, oh, this is hard to understand. And I put it here and say, I just don't. I don't, I don't have it. I don't know what this means. I don't get it. And what my wife would say, my wife doesn't mince words if you know her, and she said, this is actually arrogance. This is actually a, a heightened sense of arrogance in, our, in and of ourselves. Um, she observed then uh, that, that because we think that we deserve not to be exposed for what we really are, because that's what the Bible is going to do. The Bible is going to demonstrate to us who we really are, and we don't like that. That feels bad. We don't like to feel bad. We like to feel good. And so in a lot of times when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, for example, we see some things here and we think to ourselves, either we gloss over it or we, or we just avoid it altogether because it's, a, uh, because it's a difficult thing. But we see here that Jesus is clearly showing us that these are things that, that we can do, but we can't do them by ourselves. These are, these are set, he's setting up just this understanding that we can't be the people that God intends us to be on our own. And by actually admitting that, by sitting down and reading our Bible in a disciplined, consistent manner, we're actually admitting that. We're saying, yeah, no, I am a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. And the, 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 the decisions that I make on a daily basis are things that, uh, that, are, that are opposed to who God is. Um, and I, in and of myself, have no ability to alter that identity. I, in and of myself, have no ability to alter that identity. The Bible is constantly painting this portrait of, of humanity. It's trying to dethrone God and come up with a better way. How can I come up with a better way to live? But God says, I know everything, and I'm going to show you how it all works together. And again, the Sermon on the Mount is intended to do that. It's intended to show us the deity of Christ and how he knows how everything in the life of the believer is fitting together this side of eternity. Why is it all important? And it might not make a lot of sense as we look at it because we apply the world's metrics to it. Um, but he says, clearly, God says, I'm God and you're not. <laughs> Our two-year-old um, he demonstrates this just with a relentless consistency all of the time. So the, he, he was being disobedient recently, and this has happened all the time. He actually did it again yesterday. And Rebecca gave him some very specific inst instruction and correction and looked at him and just said it to him the way that it was. He said, Ted, you cannot do this anymore. And then he looks at her and he says, you're not my mommy. I'm my mom. <laughs> and this has happened multiple times and that's hilarious except for the fact that's exactly who we are and what we do all the time with God we look at him and we shake our fists at him and we say you're not my God I'm my God and we want that it's just, it's just a portrait of a portrait of humanity and therein lies again our reluctance to give ourselves to consistent, disciplined Bible reading because we see just how dumb we look standing there shaking our fists at God saying, I'm my God. I'm my God. We, we claim to be Him and we don't want to be exposed because it feels better to be our own God, no matter how fictitious that is. And so 
again, my wife, I think that this is incredibly wise. I think we're arrogant. We prefer to hold on to our self-assessment. I think that we prefer to think of ourselves more highly than we... Did I lose yeah. it? Yeah. No? Okay. I'll shout. Um, think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Um, it's not a, so even then, when we think about arrogance, oftentimes we think about the way that we live our lives and we think about someone who has a really high opinion of themselves. <clears throat> But in a lot of ways, that's not the, what, what arrogance is. Arrogance isn't about the quality of thoughts you have about yourself, but the quantity of thoughts that you have about yourself. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he writes this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. I love that. Greasy, smarmy person. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seems cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy his life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not even be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can think to tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step two. At least nothing, what it, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. This is just the, the natural order of, order of things. To constantly be down on oneself also is a form of arrogance. To constantly say, I don't understand what stands before me is to be considering yourself before, uh, before anything else. And because of our self-assessment, because we think that we're the most important thing, we don't give our thoughts to anything larger than ourselves. And though Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole of the Bible erodes this notion dramatically. There's no longer any room for this kind of thought and activity. There's no longer any type of space for this to, to happen. Because Jesus is saying and demonstrating to us that, that there is something that is far greater going on here. The kingdom of heaven and its inhabitants are doing something far greater than just thinking about themselves. Give it, so again, bringing this back to understanding and knowing our Bibles, giving ourselves the consistent discipline Bible reading because... Doing so, we want to do so because it's a form of denying ourselves. So if you walk into a, a Christian bookstore, right, big air quotes there, if you walk into a Christian bookstore, you see a ton of literature that's focused at you as an individual. And it, it is focused on you because it's what sells. It, it, it's not inherently, because it's just because it's in a Christian bookstore doesn't mean that it's actually demonstrating to us who we are in light of Scripture. We love to hear about us. And the friends will see this morning that the Bible is not about us. It's not about us. We do not stand at the center of this story. We don't. We don't do, we're, that's not what we're doing. And, then, and to set this aside then, to set aside our Bible and to allow it to collect dust um, is an indication that we want to leave ourselves in the driver's seat of our lives. We want to leave ourselves right at the center, right at the core. And, it, and because, because of the core, this book threatens any fiction that we have that we can be there. That we can live there. That we can spend our time there. Okay, so final thought then. Just about legalism. 
Because this morning's text is about the law. Jesus is about the law and the prophets and the Old Testament in general. Um, this is a word that we like to use a lot. We say, well, let's not get legalistic, right? When something gets a little bit tough, we go, like, well, let's not get legalistic about this. And we sort of like back off of, of any big time phrase and we're like, we're like, boy, is that a demand? I don't think we can get legalistic here. Uh, when we're talking about requirements for living, this is where it, it comes up. But I think that we need to define legalism just within the Christian context. What is legalism? What does legalism mean? Um, I, I, think it, I think as we look today at our, our text, I think it's going to give us a clear picture of what it means. Um, Jesus is going to say that the law is not going away, so the law has a role. We need, to, we need to really grapple with the fact that the law has a role in our lives as believers. It has a really important role, in fact. Um, for the believer, it has a role, and we need to acknowledge that, but the role is not to save us. The purpose of the law is not to save us. That's not why God gave the Old Testament to us. And that's not why we keep the Old Testament and continue to read it. We read it because it operates as a guidepost and an understanding of what it means to live spirit-empowered lives. What does it look like to live a life that's in step with what God has called us to? So there's this understanding that this, it's this outwork of saving faith. And it's not different from everyone else. Right in a hyper-individualized culture, we look at, what does it mean to, for me to be obedient? Well, that is probably different than someone else. No, it's not. The Bible is clear, it's not. It's the same for each of us. It's the same for each of us to be obedient to what God has called us to in Scripture. Now, there's different flavors to it. Don't get me wrong. But we don't pick and choose different commands and say, oh, yeah, they're like... Jesus, when he's going to start talking about anger, he's going to say, you shall not murder, in verse 21 of chapter 5, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is not true for one Christian and not for another. This is true for everyone, and not even just us, but for the entire world. So, again, there are aspects to this that have different flavors. Obviously, we go in and out of life into different circumstances and find ourselves facing the truth of this in a different way. And yet, the truth that lies here does not change. It is not alterable. So, again, aspects of this have different flavors, but it all has the same, the same end. It has the same aim. It has the same goal. David writes, David writes King David in, in, in Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 14. He says what the aim of the law is. He says three things. He says it's to be warned. It's to discern one's errors. And it's to mitigate presumptuous sin. Listen to what he writes. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. He says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than, the, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. 
In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We like verse 14. We like to talk about verse 14. But rarely do we take the attitude of King David prior to in verses 7 through 13. Rarely do we see the, the commandments of Christ and the, the things that God gives us and the way in which we ought live as something outside of just legalism. And so this is, this is a problem that's going to lead us now to, to our text. So look then with me. Let's read this together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Again, transition here. Jesus is transitioning now into some very specific teaching about how the disciple should live. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, the, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there are four verses here, and there's a lot to unpack. We're going to focus on how Jesus' words impact the sermon moving forward in particular. How Jesus' words here are going to impact the, the sermon moving forward. So four things that, that Jesus breaks this down really nicely for us, and our versification in our Bible shows us this. So in verse 17, Jesus makes a claim about the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In verse 18, he clarifies what that means. In verse 19, he gives us the consequences of the claim he just makes for the, for the, in the life of the disciple. And then in verse 20, he gives us a clarification of those consequences. So that's all some words, and I think it'll make more sense as we, as we break down the text together. So let's get our head sort of around these. So first, let's just look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So first statement, most straightforward, very straightforward statement here. I have come to get rid of the law. I've come to complete it, to make it whole. And what does Jesus mean when he says the law and the prophets? Those might be capitalized in your Bible. I think he just means the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Everything that comes before Jesus in this book is pointing to him, is leading up to him, is demonstrating who he is, and is going to find its fulfillment in him. So we see predictive prophecy in the Old Testament, saying who the Messiah is going to be, what he looks like, how he, how he lives, and, and what, he's, what, what it's going to appear like to the people who are around him. And he, he's going to fulfill all of those things. And then we see the law, right? The first five books of the Old, the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch. You're going to look at each of those things. If you're slogging your way through Leviticus right now, you're probably wondering, well, what does this have to do with anything with, with the New Testament? 
But Jesus is saying each of these things that's given, each of these commands that's given is fulfilled in who I am. So this statement, verse 17, doesn't seem, it seems relatively small and probably not shocking right out of the gate, right? It seems, it seems kind of small. Um, and, and I think that, again, we're tempted to just kind of gloss over it. There's some tough stuff that came before, and then there's some tough stuff that comes after. We're, we're tempted to move on to the anger and the lust and the retaliation part. But we kind of, we kind of miss out on Jesus' setup here. And verse 17 is incredibly important. And why is it important? I think it's important for, for this reason primarily. This verse teaches us how to read our Bible. This verse teaches us how to read our Bibles. And you're probably looking at it and like, how? How is this going to teach me how to read my Bible? Um, because Jesus gives us what the Bible's all about right here. He shows us what it's all, all about. Jesus tells us what, what to have in mind when, we're, when we are slogging through Leviticus or when we're reading an imprecatory psalm. Or when, we're, or when we're trying to figure out some of this apocalyptic literature in Daniel. What, what is this? What, what is going on here? And Jesus says, I stand at the center of it all. I stand at the center of it all. You don't need to look anywhere other than to, to Jesus to understand what the heart of God's story is. So, the Star Wars, <laughs> you, you, you watch Luke meet Obi-Wan at the beginning of A New Hope in Star Wars, right? And he tells him a little bit about his dad. But you think about that interaction a whole lot differently when Vader tells Luke that he's his father. Right? You think, maybe that's, okay, all right. <laughs> when you know the end of the story, when you know details of the story that come later, it, it causes you to think through something very differently later. Right? When you know that Jesus is the one who came to earth to die for us, to, to, to make right relationship with God, when you know and understand that and see the truth of the gospel and what's contained there, when you see that clearly, it changes the way that you read the beginning of the story. And God says, my son stands at the center of all of this. So when we read in verse 17, do you, do you not, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. What he's saying is, I stand at the center of all of it. What he's saying is, don't get rid of it. Keep it. It shows you who I am. And he says, it's all about, it's all about me. So again, I think we need to put ourselves in the shoes of his hearers, right? I think that this would be a shocking thing. We'd say, do you get this? Because I think they would have heard that, and they would have thought to themselves, well, this all must just go away then. This all just must go away. But Jesus then clarifies in verse 18. And here's the clarification of the claim. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will back pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, first of all, right at the beginning, Jesus invokes his own authority. He says, for truly I say to you, I say to you, I am saying this, I am God. My deity uh, makes this an authoritative claim. Truly I say to you, he says none of this is going to pass away. All of this is still in, in effect. It probably just looks a little bit different than the way that you've been thinking about it for 
a few millennia. And Jesus is going to spell out the law in a way that in verses 21 through the end of the chapter in verse 48, he's going to spell out the law in this way that was very uncommon understanding. In fact, an irrevolutionary understanding of what the law actually is. He's going to break it down and he's going to show them through these six different statements that he intends, or maybe the law was intended to do something very different than they thought initially. He wasn't going to make sure that his disciples had an easy road in keeping the law. But he was going to raise the bar, reimagine all of this all together. For example, again next week, we're going to look at what Jesus says about anger. We're going to keep, see that keeping the law, uh, we're going to see that keeping the law in a way that Jesus sees it requires more than just external behavior modification. It, 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 uh, it actually requires, because the standard is so much higher, that even an anger towards your brother will, will, will make you liable to judgment. We'll see that this, this raises the bar so that you can't just be you and pull this off. You need something else. You need something additional. You need to be made new. You need to be granted a helper. And you need to understand and know that Jesus Christ came to earth to transform you. And he says, not a dot or iota will pass from the law. Uh, we will follow Jesus then. Through following him, we will follow the law. This is what he means. He says, follow me. But that doesn't mean getting rid of what came before. What it means is acknowledging it and even understanding it at a greater level than before. Following Jesus then is seeing all that he requires and setting everything else aside to do what he requires. That's what verse 18 communicates to us. Following Jesus is seeing everything that he requires and setting everything aside to do what he requires. So then look at verse 19. So here's clarification of the claim that he, he just makes. Right, or the consequences, rather, I'm sorry, the consequences of the claim that he just makes. What does this mean for us? And this is where it gets practical, right? What does this mean for us? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, okay, well, okay. Um, maybe you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, well, then not a big deal. Okay, I'll just get around to this later. Isn't again? Isn't this all just legalism? My answer is no. Because maybe you're saying, "Oh yeah, I'm following Jesus, but I can indulge in the pleasures and pursuits of the the world right now." But this verse here is a constant theme that we're going to keep coming back to in the Sermon on the Mount. Relaxing claims is just buying what the world is selling. Relaxing claims is just saying uh, uh, that. Uh, now, whatever you see here, culturally, if culture is telling you X, and God's word tells you Y, opting for X, then, is a denial of Christ and your identity in Him. It's placing yourself at the center of your life. It's saying that your comfort and convenience are primary. That's what X is. That's what culture tells you to do. But if we're opting for Y, what God's word tells us, then we're, we're denying ourselves. We're, we're, we're realizing our true identity as the salt of the earth and the, the light of the world. We're submitting ourselves to the king. And we're acknowledging that temporary comfort here and convenience, they're nothing. They're garbage. Paul calls them rubbish. But following Jesus is, in fact, costly. 
And look at what he says, though, here, too. He says, whoever relaxes these commandments, or whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, teaches others to do the same. And I don't think Jesus means that this is just like this verbal processing that goes along and we just walk out into the world and we say, hey, these commandments, not that important. Which one of us is saying that? Nobody's walking out and saying that. But I think what he's saying is that we're always instructing with our lives. So if you've been with Buffalo City Church for a while, you'll remember our mission statement. Our mission statement is uh, we exist to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a simple statement. We exist to make disciples who make disciples of, of Jesus Christ. And we have this definition of disciple, right? This definition of disciple is a worshiper, as a learner, right? And also as a witness. A disciple worships God by finding satisfaction in Him and seeking to glorify Him in every area of life. A disciple seeks to know God, to learn about who God is, is revealed in the Bible. And a disciple bears witness to what God has done through Christ Jesus on his or her behalf. And so we look at that and we see a disciple who makes disciples is someone who encourages others to do the same. Who looks at them and says, yeah, I, I'm encouraging you to worship God. I'm encouraging you to, to, uh, to bear witness to what he's done for you in your life. To learn about who he is in the pages of scripture. Um, you're never, here's the, the crux of this, you're never not making disciples. You're never not making a worshiper or a learner or a witness of something. This is what we're doing. We're always engaged in this activity. If you have cats and you love cats, you spend hours grooming your cats, and you spend your money on playthings for cats, and if you read online articles about cats, and if you edit the Wikipedia article about cats, and if you, your entire world is focused and generated on cats, you're teaching others to love cats. Like, even if you don't love cats, like, you're like, wow, look at that guy. He really loves cats. That's, that's incredible. So what we do then is we're like, if cats make us happy, then we do look at that and say, no, we, we, if I'm dedicating all of my time to cats, then I'm, then I'm instructing the world about cats. And I'm personally relaxing then, what Jesus says here, if you're personally relaxing the commands of Christ, by living like it just kind of matters. Like maybe it's an okay thing. Maybe it's something to do. Or maybe you're just excusing sin in lives, in your life, and the life of others. And we're teaching others to relax the commands also. And Jesus, when he says here, he doesn't mince words, right? He doesn't mince words here. He says, this one who relaxes and teaches others to relax, he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Which means the kingdom of heaven just isn't for this individual. This is what this means. And then Jesus states the opposite, right? He gives the opposite. What does it mean? Or he gives the opposite of, of this statement. He says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does these things and keeps the commands, teaches others to do that, he will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And in other words, following Jesus and making disciples. That's, that's just, just a shorthand for that. He's like, following me and teaching others to follow me, they will be great in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is for this individual. So just because we haven't talked about this for a while, I think it's important that we just take a second and, and discuss this. Because this is a clear discipleship verse. 
This is talking about making disciples and what, what it looks like on a daily basis to be making disciples. Um, what does that mean? What does it mean to be making? We think of this discipleship making thing, we think of it as a mentor-mentee process. Every Tuesday at 7, we get together for coffee or in a stuffy church classroom and read something in the Bible or somewhere else. And we just we sit down and we do that, and then we wrap up, we pray for each other, we go, and then next week, we don't see each other any time between then, and then we go, and then next week we do the same thing, over and over and over and over again. Um, and can discipleship look like that? Yes, I th- I, yes, it can. I, I think so. But I don't think it's a whole biblical picture of discipleship. Well, when we think about discipleship, all we're thinking about is the structure and setting. What is the structure and setting of discipleship? Oh, it's a classroom and we'll read a book. Right? Like, something like that. But that's not what the biblical portrait of discipleship is. Discipleship is make, disciple making is speech and action that is oriented towards worshiping God teaching about who he is and bearing witness to what he's done in Jesus Christ. And that's simple. That can happen on Tuesday at 7 p.m. in a coffee shop, but it doesn't have to. The whole life, our whole life is disciple-making. And the question is not, am I making disciples? The question is, of what am I making disciples? Or what am I making disciples of? If you want to end your question or proposition. And for many of us, Right? It's about getting a bigger house, or a better car, or sports, or being passionate about whatever. We're making disciples of something other than Jesus. And not that those things are bad, but we as people need to understand that those things are given to us as tools to point people to Jesus, and not ends in and of themselves. Not our ultimate aim is not there in and, of it, in and of itself. We could flesh these out, I think, probably more. We could think about this a little bit longer, but just for the sake of time, we're not going to. But just philosophically then, philosophically, Rene Descartes, he said, and I'm sure you've all heard this, I think, therefore I am. Right? I think, therefore I am. And that, that's good, it's philosophy. But I think it's a little bit different than what the, the Bible paints for us. I think the Bible says, I love, therefore I am. Because I think as people, we are always orienting our reality. What we do, our habits, where we find ourselves throughout the course of the week, who we interact with, regularly or irregularly, around what we love. But Jesus says something incredibly profound here as we look at this. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands that teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is, if you love me, you'll do what I command. And you will teach what I command through the way that you speak and the way that you live. And Jesus is also saying, if you speak and live in a way that disregards my commands, then you do not love me. So then he gives this brief clarification in verse 20, and this is probably the toughest verse here, probably the most troubling of all. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says your righteousness must exceed that of the most righteous people in society. What? Are you crazy? There's two sides to this coin, really, when he says this, too. He says, I'm going to call this righteous 
this, this is righteousness. Okay, so as Jesus outlines this for us, there's righteousness that demands rest, and there's righteousness that demands action. Right? First, we must understand. First, we must understand that there is a component to the righteousness that has been accomplished in Christ. We're resting in the completed work of Jesus. He's done everything for us, everything that we need to do. The perfect life that we failed to live, Jesus lived. Right? And we're clothed in his righteousness through the great exchange that takes place on the cross. Our sin goes to him, and his righteousness comes to us. And both are totally necessary to stand before a holy God justified. We need to rest in that truth daily, regularly, all of the time. The difference here is that the scribes and the Pharisees, the most righteous of people that Jesus says, they trusted in themselves. What makes Jesus' disciples different is that they trust in Him. So, that's the first part of this, the first side of this coin. We trust Jesus for our righteousness. This righteousness drives us to rest. We're not striving to earn what's necessary for salvation. It's been given to us freely. But then there's a second idea here that's contained here in this righteousness thought. And it's probably more directly applicable to what Jesus is saying. How we live, again, not as something that saves us, but is ethically and morally upright because it is God who empowers the work through His Spirit. This is the righteousness that He gives us, this moral and ethical uprightness that's granted to us. And Jesus is actually calling, when He says this, He's actually calling His disciples to be more externally, more externally upright than the most righteous people in society. And this is a righteousness that demands action. We see Jesus go at the scribes and Pharisees. So we might be tempted to look at this as, well, those guys were jerks anyways. Like, those guys were jerks, so it probably isn't going to be hard for us to, to exceed their righteousness. But the fact of the matter, these were the most righteous people in their society. And the disciples would have had a ton of respect for these people. Jesus' words here would have invoked sort of this, yeah, right, from his disciples. Charles Quarles writes this, when Jesus demanded a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, he was not implying that the scribes and Pharisees were wicked lawbreakers who set a very low standard for conduct that could easily be surpassed. When Jesus called for a righteousness that surpassed that of the scribes and Pharisees, his hearers would likely have gasped and wondered if, they were, if it was possible to achieve such righteousness. Scott McNally writes this, Jesus takes such examples, somewhat like taking Mother Teresa or John Stott or Dallas Willard or Francis Chan and saying, you've got to be much, much better. This is clear for us. We must not relax. We must pursue personal holiness relentlessly. Relentlessly understand what Jesus demands of us and live in line with those things. We must be vigilant to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. We must see what God intends for us and act and act now. And we must see that over the next course of the next six weeks as we look at each of these things here, 
anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving enemies. As we look at each of those things, these several examples, Jesus is going to give us what this superior righteousness to even the most righteous people looks like. So, just in conclusion, then, what, is this, what does this mean? I'm just going to give you three quick things. This, what Jesus is saying here, keeping the law and not relaxing his commands, what he says here is new creation activity. This is not something that can be done outside of being made new in Christ. As followers of Jesus, the only way to have righteousness that exceeds that of the most righteous is to be remade. That's it. That only comes through the cross of Christ. If you're here this morning... There, there is no way to have this righteousness. There's no way to live the way that God intends for us to live with a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees outside of the truth of the gospel. There's no way for that to happen. We're sinful, broken people. And no amount of work on your part can change that. But there is one who worked on your behalf, Jesus Christ. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life that you could not live. He died a death that you deserved. He defeated sin and death through his resurrection. And he reigns as king of kings over all things. This is Jesus. This is the one that we place our trust in. And if we trust him, the promises of God, they find their yes and their amen in him. If we do that, then we are being remade. We have been made new. We have been born again into a living hope. And we won't, when we look at this, if we struggle with sin, will things still bog us down in this world? Yes, the answer is yes. Absolutely, because we inhabit the body of flesh, but as new creation, we will be given the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and we'll be empowered to live according to what Jesus outlines for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the righteousness that he commands and the righteousness that he demands that exceeds even the most righteous people is now possible in Christ Jesus. So that's the first thought. This is new creation activity. Secondly, then, we cannot relax the commands of Christ. Oftentimes, again, we look at these things and we begin to, the next six weeks again, we'll, we'll delve into these a little bit more. But if we begin to relax these things, we begin to think through. But this is, this is something that I can set aside for a time, right? Jesus, the warning is clear. There's the least of these. Whoever relaxes the least of these and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven isn't for the one who doesn't see the dramatic importance of what Jesus commands his followers to do. That's the fact of the matter. This isn't legalism. This is the outworking of the spirit-empowered understanding that we have been born again, that we have been made new, right? And then finally, just a final thought and conclusion, Jesus stands at the center of the story. The reason that this is all hard is because we think to ourselves that we stand at the center of the story. We think that we, what happens to us in our moment-to-moment, day-to-day, is the most important thing that, that can possibly be going on in the world. What a myopic, ridiculous, nearsighted understanding. And Jesus is just like, in verse 17, he just blows that whole thing up, and he says, you're not the most important. And he says, I am. I'm the God of the universe. 
the agency by which all things came into being. And he, and he says, I am here to, to grant you life, to make you new, to, to ensure that you will be born again, and to ensure that the right relationship that you desperately need with God can be had. And that's what he's going to do. It's going to culminate at the end of Matthew's Gospel in his death, in his burial, his resurrection. And then it's going to culminate in him speaking directly to his disciples and telling them to go and make it all known to others. So this morning, those three things, walk away with those three things, consider those three things. New creation activity. If you're a new creation, you should be understand, see, you can understand and know exactly what it is that God requires of you in Jesus Christ. And to live in line with the identity that you've been granted. And then we need to look at those things and say, I cannot relax these things. There are no days off from this. I don't get to, don't get to take a vacation from the identity that I have in Christ. And then it's to acknowledge that all of this is for Him, for His glory, that He stands at the center of it all. Let's pray.